as we uh, start in it on our series of Christmas messages for this year, I want to preach to you this morning on the topic of what child is this? And if you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 1. We'll be answering that question today. Well, Brother Preston stole a little bit of my thunder, but he mentioned earlier today as we sang this carol, William Chatterton Dix. He was an insurance salesman from Glasgow, Scotland. And not many would have expected such a man to make a godly impact on the world. From what we can tell, most of his early years were preoccupied with trying to make a fortune. And uh, much like Ebenezer Scrooge, you might say, Dix did not think much of Christ, nor was he known as a churchgoer. You might say that gold was his God. But how many of you know that God has a way of tracking you down and getting your attention even when you aren't looking for him? Mr. Dix had a wake-up call, and it came in the form of a debilitating sickness. All of a sudden, his body was racked with an incurable ailment. The doctors were baffled. Dix was depressed. And now unable to work, all of a sudden, he was bedridden and his riches began to be eroded away. But you also know that the scriptures tell us that oftentimes our disappointments are God's appointments, aren't they? And while languishing on that sickbed, Mr. Dix decided that he would search for answers to life's mysteries by opening the Bible. Not only did Mr. Dix find answers, but Christ found him. And that sickness turned out to be his salvation. The Lord's impact on Mr. Dix's life was so great that it, during that season of suffering, he began to put the pen to paper and he, he wrote furiously. And some of those musings were poems one of which was turned into a beloved Christmas carol, What Child Is This? And the hymn asks, What child is this who's laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste, bring him laud, the babe the son of Mary. Now each Christmas we are beckoned back to Bethlehem and the nativity where we are to ponder that question as the hymn writer asks, what child is this? And the answer that you give to that question will define much of your life and certainly eternity. Now, if you turn to the New Testament, you'll get the Christmas story in three very different perspectives. For instance, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, that's where we get Joseph's perspective on the Christmas story. We read about his dreams, and we read about the angel Gabriel coming to him and announcing that he was to take care of Mary's son. And in that Gospel of Matthew, we learn from his take on the Gospel story that Jesus is the King of the Jews, the long-awaited Messiah. Well, then if you go to the Gospel of Luke, you find another perspective. There you get Mary's side of the story. And we hear the angel coming to Mary. And that Gospel focuses in on Mary's song. And uh, all that was going on as she treasured these things in her heart, the Bible said. And in that Gospel, we learn that Jesus is the virgin-born Savior of all mankind. 
Well, if you come to John's gospel, you get a third and a very unique perspective on Christmas. John doesn't say anything to us about the wise men or the manger or the star or the shepherds. Instead, what we have is a prologue in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And there we get heaven's perspective, where we are told that Jesus is the Son of God, God of eternity, born into history. And as we read through John chapter 1 this morning, this grand Christological statement, it's like drinking water from a fire hydrant, you might say. There's so much truth, there's so much great theology in there, there's no way we could pack it all into one sermon or, or take it in in all, one sitting. But you'll notice that John uses such simple language, language that could be understood even by a child. And yet he conveys a mystery beyond the comprehension of the most erudite minds, and that is that God has become a man, and the man Christ Jesus. And that is the essence of the Christmas message and the answer to the hymn writer's query. What child is this? So we're going to skim the highlights of John chapter 1, and in this prologue, we're going to notice three timeless truths about the identity of Christ. Number one, I want you to see this today. Jesus is the infinite Lord of eternity. He's the infinite Lord of eternity. Now let's read, if you will, John chapter 1, starting in verse 1 down to verse 3. The Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, And all things were made through Him, that without Him was not anything made that was made. Now as we open up this profound prologue, we notice that phrase, In the beginning. We've read that before, Bible students, haven't we? It harkens back to Genesis 1-1, when all of time, space, and matter came into being. It takes us back to the very creation moment when God spoke and the universe came into existence. Going from creation, John goes further back and he wants to ponder eternity past in these first few verses. And he reminds us here that before there was something there was a someone. It was the Word who we find out is Jesus Christ. Now here as we see Him, the infinite Lord of eternity, I want you to notice in verses 1 and 2 that we see Christ's relationship to the Father. His relationship to the Father. Notice in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. Now, John chose a unique title to describe Christ. He uses the word word. If you could read it in the Greek, it's the actual term is logos. To the Greek philosophers, the logos was the impersonal, abstract principle of reason and order in the universe. In other words, to them, it was the divine mind that put everything together. The Greek philosophers looked out upon the world and they saw the beauty they saw the regularity, they saw the design of creation, and they concluded even from their pagan viewpoint that there must be some sort of super intelligent mind that unifies and brings it all together. And they coined that phrase way back, the term logos, to refer to that. 
Well, John goes one step further. He borrows that idea from the Greeks and he brings it now into Christian theology and he says, look, the Logos isn't just an idea, it's an individual. It's a person. It's an everlasting, infinite God. Now, these verses not only teach us about Christ's pre-existence, where we read, in the beginning was the Word, even before time, even before matter and space, But they also point, notice this, to his co-existence. The word was with God and was God. So John is giving us a peek behind the curtain into the sacred life of the divine trinity. And what he's saying here is Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. And yet he is also distinct. Before time began, there they were, Father, Son, and Spirit, unity and diversity in the community of the Trinity. If you try to explain it away, you will lose your salvation. And if you try uh, to explain it, you may lose your mind. Friend, I'm thankful today that we have a God that we cannot fully wrap our minds around. Don't ask me to be able to explain it all. I can't. Friend, I just preach it and I believe it all, even if my puny mind can't wrap itself around these great eternal truths. I love what theologian Norman Geisler says in one of his books. He said, quote, God did not need to create in order to be fulfilled because before He ever created, before He ever ruled the world, God the Father was eternally loving God the Son. And God the Son was eternally loving God the Father. He says the lover, the beloved, the spirit of love, God had eternally existed in a perfect fellowship. And without a triune God, love, he said, could not exist. Just as if there was a father and no son, there would be no one to love. So friend, picture it. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit living in eternity past. Perfect community, perfect fellowship one with another. And it is out of this love relationship that spills out. And creation happens out of that love bond between God the Father and God the Son. And God the Father elects in eternity past that the Son would be the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, even before there was one molecule in existence, one star that was shining, one planet that we might call home. The councils of eternity had already been decided that there would be a creation. They knew there would be a fall, and Jesus Christ would be the Savior of all humanity. It was that love that bound the Trinity together And if you keep reading in John's gospel, if you make it to John 3.16, you find out that it was that love that caused the Father to send the Son to this earth for you and for me. Friend, notice this today. You can't be loved any more than you're loved right now by God. You can't do anything to make Him love you any less than the way you are already loved perfectly, eternally, sacrificially by God the Father and God the Son. Friend, I've given Jesus a thousand and one reasons not to love me, and that didn't change one iota of His heart. He still came anyway into this world to save an old wretched sinner like Derek McCarson. Friend, He loved us before time began. And praise God, He'll love us as the ages roll on. Friend, this is the eternal God, the infinite Lord of eternity. 
Notice not only Christ's relationship to the Father, but this verse also talks about Christ's role in creation. Christ's role in creation in verse 3. Notice what our text says. John puts it positively and negatively so that we won't miss it. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made forward and backwards, black and white. He gets it and puts it on the bottom shelf so that even the, the slower kids can pick it up like me. But notice here Christ's role in creation. We understand here from this verse that God the Father created the universe through God the Son. Now there's several parallel verses throughout the New Testament that we should read alongside this. Colossians 1.16, listen to what it says there, Paul writing. He says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That means my God doesn't make a mistake. That means my God has a purpose and a plan. There are no maverick molecules in the existence of this world because my God is sitting on the throne. Because Jesus Christ is reigning today. Now friend, uh, this is one of those verses where the skeptics and the atheists might want to take the task of the Christian worldview because they look at the world and they say, we're here by time plus matter plus chance and you happen to be a cosmic accident. How's that for some hope in your life? You're just a cosmic blip on the radar. You have no purpose. You have no reason for existence. You have no real morality. That's the atheistic and the skeptical worldview. Friend, I think it takes more faith to be an atheist because atheism says no one plus nothing equals everything. And the Christian worldview says that uh, in Genesis 1-1 that God created the heavens and the earth so that uh, someone spoke it all into existence. And that someone was Jesus Christ according to John 1-3. Now, the worldview of atheism has fallen on hard times lately because science is beginning to unravel more and more of the apparent truth that there is a loving, intelligent creator behind it all. For the past 50 years, science has made many stunning discoveries which show that evolution is a house of cards falling apart. For instance, when you consider the fine-tuning of the universe, not only does it prove how precise the conditions must be for life on this planet to exist, but that also points to the fact that God's fingerprints are all over the place, all over this creation. For instance, in their book, The Privileged Planet, a couple of astronomers, Guillermo Gonzalez and Jay Richards, they cite numerous examples which explain the exact proportion and placement of this little blue orb that we call Earth. Listen to this. Earth is 93 million miles from the sun. Scientists say it's stationed in something called the Goldilocks zone. Remember the old fairy tale of the three bears and Goldilocks? Well, if, they say if Earth were slightly closer to the sun, then most of our water would evaporate and we would be a desert planet. By the same token, if the earth were slightly further away, she would be a frozen tundra and life would be impossible here on earth. But we just happen to be in that exact placement where there's water so that we can have life. Earth is also the perfect size too. Did you know that? If earth were any smaller, they say, our magnetic field would be weaker 
and solar winds would quickly strip us of our atmosphere down to nothing so that we would end up looking like the surface of Mars, desolate and lifeless. Consequently, they say if Earth were any larger, she would end up exerting more powerful force of gravity, preventing any water, methane, or carbon dioxide from escaping our atmosphere. And the result of that would be that our atmosphere would be thicker, more viscous, and we would suffocate because we couldn't breathe in that environment. But Earth just happens to be the right placement distance away from the sun, the right size to sustain life, and the skeptic looks out upon it and says, oh, we're just here by some sort of evolutionary thing that we can't explain. Friend, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Did you know that the earth sits on a 23.5 degree axial tilt? (laughs) They say this is also key to life because this tilt lets most of the continents experience four seasons. They say if this tilt were altered in the slightest degree, either to the plus or the minus, it would cause surface temperatures too extreme for life. Friend, are you beginning to get the picture? That we're not an accident. That we're not just whirling through space. That we're not just some random blue dot out in the ocean of empty space. But that we were created lovingly and for a purpose by an almighty God a creator named Jesus Christ and he came into his own creation as a babe born in Bethlehem and friend if that truth doesn't explode your mind here today I don't know anything that will Hebrews 1.3 is another verse we ought to read alongside this listen to what the text says he Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power in other words Jesus not only creates life He sustains life. And without His upholding power, every atom in the universe, every cell in our bodies would disintegrate. Very literally, what the Bible is saying to us is that Christ is the cosmic superglue. He holds it all together. It's all for Him and by Him. And it's all moving to Him. At the end of time, it will be all about Jesus Christ. The only name that will echo through the halls of eternity, friend. You see, God's fingerprints are all over every square inch of this universe. Whether you look up into the telescope, into the deep reaches of space, or whether you look down into the microscope, into the invisible world that is too small for our eyes to see, God is everywhere. Recently, listen to this. This pertains to Hebrews 1.3 and John 1.3. Biologists have discovered a microscopic protein in your cell and my cells called laminin. Look at it there under an electron microscope uh, to, in the black and white. Laminin is essentially, they say, acts as a glue that binds proteins together that allows for the building of complex cell structures in our bodies. Friend, let me ask you a question. When did you ever stop in your prayers and thank God that He put the earth on a 23.5 degree tilt? When did you ever thank God that He put laminin inside your cells But He did it out of love, out of super wisdom for you and for me. He's a great God. He's a good God. And if I've got any intelligence about me, I'll thank Him for the things that I don't even know that He's blessed me with. Like laminin inside my body. Listen to this. Biologists were astounded to find that laminins generally take the shape of a cross Literally, the glory of God written inside the cell of every 7 billion plus human beings on this planet. 
And friend, what I want you to see here is that with every discovery, scientists only confirm what the Word of God has already declared hundreds of years in advance. And friend, it almost uh, blows my mind. It moves me beyond words to know that the God who, put, who spoke and sent the stars into their orbit, who hung the planets in place, who carved out the mountains and the riverbeds, the God that knows every cell in my body, has all my steps ordered, knows every hair on my head, is the same God who was born in a Bethlehem stable for you and for me. How could we deny it? How could we escape it? friend a love so great for you and for me oh what child is this the hymn writer asks I'm here today to tell you it was the creator in the cradle the infinite became an infant the maker of all things was being made in the womb of a little Jewish girl friend I don't understand it I'll never get to the depths of it but here's what the Bible says that the author of history entered into the story and he became the hero of all ages the creator and the redeemer the king of kings and the lord of lords all wrapped up in one little bundle in the arms of Mary he made the forest from whence there sprung the tree upon which his body hung he died upon a cross of wood yet he made the hill upon which it stood my my Jesus is the infinite Lord of eternity. What child is this? Number two, I want you to see today. Jesus is the illuminating light of humanity. He's the infinite Lord and He's the illuminating light. Look at what verses 4 and 5 say. The Bible says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The metaphor of light is so central to the Christmas message, isn't it? In the Bible, darkness is often symbolic of a few things. Human ignorance, willful blindness. Sometimes, well, a lot of times the Bible says we like to stay in the dark because our evil and sinful deeds are hidden there. Darkness also stands for evil in the Scriptures. But light is often pictured in the Bible as knowledge, as truth, as hope. The Bible says in uh, 1 Timothy 6 that God dwells in inapproachable light or unapproachable light. And the idea here that John is communicating is that before Christ came, humanity did not know God they did not prefer the light. They preferred the darkness because they loved their sin. They, they loved evil. But just as the light dispels the darkness, the Bible says that Christ's coming brought knowledge of God and finally the hope of salvation to all mankind. Now there's a lot of interesting parallels that we might draw in this passage between light and Christ. And by the way, if you keep reading in John's gospel, when you get to chapter 8 and verse 12, he claims the prerogative for himself, I am the light of the world. What does that mean? What do verses 4 and 5 mean? Well, let me suggest a few ways that we parallel light with the Christmas message and with the person of Christ. First, I want you to see there is the vitality of light. In Genesis, you go back to Genesis 1, what was the first thing that God did on day one of creation? Anybody know? He turned the lights on. 
God said, let there be light. And similarly, when we're saved, when we come to a knowledge of Christ, when we are born again, the Bible says that we move out of the kingdom of darkness and into His glorious light. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And so, Christ is life and light, the vitality of light. And then you see something here also, the purity of light. Light can never be defiled. It can never be corrupted. And just so, Jesus is pure and holy and incorruptible. And He lived in a sinful world, yet the Bible says He never committed sin. He never spoke a lie. He was never defiled by the sin and the evil in the world. In Him there is light and no darkness. The purity of light, the vitality of light. How about the constancy of light? The scientists tell us that one constant in our universe is the speed of light. 186,000 miles per second. It takes light about 8 minutes to reach our earth from the sun. And yet, just so, Jesus is our one constant. In an ever-changing world where you turn on the news one day and it seems as if things are falling apart. When you feel in your spirit as if there are no answers. When you feel hopeless. When you are looking for God to answer a prayer, there is one constant in all of our lives through the ups and the downs, the, the valleys and the mountaintops, through the good and the bad, through the sickness and the prosperity. There's one who always remains the same. His name is Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The constancy of light. He's unchanging. He's always faithful. I may be rejected by the world I may feel like I'm the odd man out in a certain group, but I always have a friend in Jesus. The constancy of light, the purity of light, the vitality of light. How about this? How about the victory of light? Darkness can't drive out the light. In fact, they tell us that darkness is really nothing at all. It's just the absence of light. And you know, in the same way, Jesus cannot be defeated by the forces of darkness and evil, the forces of Satan working in this world. In fact, the darkness of humanity's plight 2,000 years ago couldn't keep him from being born. Oh, how dark the world was. The Romans had their foot, their boot on the world. There was bloodshed. Uh, there was chaos. Uh, there were evil rulers. There was no hope for mankind. But that didn't keep Jesus Christ at bay. He came piercing in the darkness of this world. And friend, when he died on the cross and they wrapped his body and placed him in that tomb, the darkness of that tomb couldn't keep him sealed away as even they rolled that stone across. Friend, three days later, the victory of light as he spoke and walked out in power and in glory. And that's the last one. There is the glory of light. I remember in my fourth grade science class learning about the light spectrum. Roy G. Biv. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. The seven colors of the spectrum. Isn't it interesting that the number seven represents God's perfection? And that reminds us of how Jesus is glorious. And He's perfect in every way. There's no deficiency, no error, no sin in Him. I love what A.W. Tozer wrote. He said this, quote, The coming of Jesus into this world represents a truth more profound than any philosophy I have ever heard. All the great thinkers of the world together 
could never have produced anything even remotely approaching the wonder and profundity disclosed in the message of these words. He came. (laughs) He came for you and for me. These words, he says, are wiser than all learning, more beautiful than all art, more eloquent than all oratory, more lyric and moving than all music because they tell us that all of mankind sitting in the darkness has been visited by the light of the world. Somebody in the house of God say hallelujah today for the Savior of the world. Speaking of light, I read an interesting story in one of David Jeremiah's books this past week about a man who was absolutely gripped by the light of the gospel. And he let the light of Christ shine through him in an unusual way. Listen to this. In 1885, Arthur Stace was born in Australia to a dirt poor mother who gave him up to foster care. As a young man, he became a miner and then he was a soldier in World War I and afterwards he turned to be a petty thief and an alcoholic. In his own words, he said, For most of my early life, I was a loser. His early years were dark and miserable. But in 1832, Arthur stumbled into a Baptist church in Sydney, Australia, where his life was gloriously saved by Christ. Here's what happened. That evening, Arthur listened to an evangelist named John Ridley preaching on the subject. Listen to this great sermon title. Echoes of Eternity. Ridley preached on Christ, the eternal Savior of humanity, and implored his listeners to consider where they would spend eternity. At one point in the message, Riley shouted, I wish I could shout eternity to everyone in the streets of Sydney. Arthur Stace, pictured here, was so gripped by that message and what Christ had done in his life that he couldn't get the word eternity out of his mind. Since he wasn't a preacher or a singer, he was just a regular guy, Arthur decided that the Lord wanted him to do something odd. God loves odd people too. Amen. Arthur began waking up early every day and he went out on the streets of Sydney with a piece of chalk in his hand and he wrote the word eternity on sidewalks, entrances to the railroad stations, on walls, and at public restrooms. Arthur did this for 35 years and nobody knew Who is the Mr. Eternity man writing this word on our city? He became found out in 1956 after doing that for 35 years. And he became known in Sydney as Mr. Eternity. Arthur passed on at the age of 82 in 1967. But his word and his passion for eternity lived beyond him. And here's what happened. On New Year's Eve 1999... The people of Australia took the word eternity and they lit it up across their Sydney Harbour Bridge. And today, that word eternity still hangs over the city today. And as I read that story and as I thought about Jesus being the eternal Son of God and the light of the world, I thought to myself, imagine if God could do that, shining His light through a little obscure man in Australia. What could He do in your life and my life if we allow ourselves to be light bearers for Him? And you see, friend, this is the incredible hope of the Incarnation. That Jesus came into this world where mankind was groping around in the darkness with no sense of up 
or down. And friend, if you find yourself in that dark place today where it's hard to see hope, if you find yourself in that hole today where you're depressed, where even the next step is hard to think about. Friend, fear not. The light of the world sees you where you are. And just as he entered into the darkness of mankind so many years ago, he'll enter into your life, into your plight, into your problem, and he'll change you from the inside out. And you'll walk around with one word on your mind. Eternity! Eternity! And what Jesus can do for you. My goodness. What an amazing passage in John chapter 1 we learn that Jesus is the infinite Lord of eternity he's the illuminating light of humanity think about it where were you friend groping in the darkness living in your skin living for yourself not knowing what was right and wrong not knowing what step to take next in life you were blind you were in darkness you didn't have any answers, but then one day, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, came to you. And He found you where you were. And He saved you and He washed you. And He put the light of His life inside of you, friend. There's no greater message than that. The illuminating light of humanity. Thirdly, I finish with this. Jesus is the incarnated life of deity. The incarnated life of deity. Drop down to verse 14. And we'll read this together very quickly. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. The incarnated life of deity. He brought illumination and He brought revelation. Just as the Word, Jesus communicates God to us in a way that we can understand. What are words? Words are thoughts put in a way that we can understand them. And just as words are ideas clothed in language, listen, so Jesus is God's Son clothed in flesh. Thoughts are invisible until they are conveyed in words. And just so the invisible God was not known to man until it was made visible through the coming of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 1 and verse 8, Jesus would go on to say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and the last letters in the Greek alphabet. In our language today, He would be saying, I am the A and the Z. Uh, he's the Word of God. That means He's the noun of God. He's the verb of God. He's the adjective of God. When I look at Jesus, I see God spelled out in a language that I can understand and I can grab a hold of. He's the incarnated life of deity. There was no way me as a wretched sinner could get to Him. So He said, I'll come to you. And He was born in the lowest of states, in absolute poverty, surrounded by animals and manure and stink and all the things of this world that's nasty and gross, he came all the way down so that he might save the lowest of the low so that nobody could ever look at Jesus and say, well, he was born in a better position than I was. No, sir, the Son of God came down and all the way down to meet me where I was. He reached down further than what I could reach up because he's God and he bridged the gap between heaven and earth between man and God there's one man and one God the man Christ Jesus who bridges it all in a miracle of the moment time has been invaded by eternity 
the Messiah became a man. Oh, what child is this? It's the creator in the cradle. It's the incarnated life of deity. It's the illuminating light of humanity. Oh, what child is this? Do you have a couple hours for me to tell you about the goodness of my God, my Jesus Christ? He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. He's the rose of Sharon. Uh, he's beautiful in every way. He's got the keys of death and Hades. The Bible says that he who was rich was poor so that we who are poor might be made rich through his grace and his mercy one day oh what child is this friend he came the first time as a lowly lamb but friend he's coming a second time as the lion of the tribe of Judah and friend when he appears the whole world will mourn at the sight of him because he'll be coming to bring judgment and to bring justice and he'll be wearing the crown of the diadem of a king oh what child is this he's the fulfillment of every prophecy that was spoken in the Old Testament he was the lamb slain he was uh, Abraham's sacrifice on the mountain he was the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 he was the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth he's the commander of the Lord's armies in the book of Joshua can I I keep going on just a little bit in the book of Jeremiah he's the lamentation of the prophet the prophet's longing for somebody to come and save his people in the book of Daniel oh he's pictured there as the stone not made from hands who comes out of the heavens to smash the kingdoms of men in Isaiah friend he is prophesied as the one who would be born of a virgin then in chapter 9 he called him he said his name is everlasting father a prince of peace mighty God oh my goodness can I go on just a little bit longer when you get to the gospel of Matthew you find out he's the king of the Jews in the gospel of Luke he's the savior the son of man when you get to the gospel of Mark he's the suffering servant then in John he's the son of God in the epistles he's our justification he's our sanctification he's our hope and glorification He's the subject, the grand purpose of the church. He's the chief cornerstone upon built upon Him. And nobody will tear down this church. The gates of hell shall not prevail, He told Peter. Then when you get to the book of Revelation, you find out that He's the one tattooed upon His leg. Is that title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So ask me, who is He? What child is this? He's all that and more. And friend, we'll have all of eternity. To plumb the depths of who this child was. My, my. Years ago, there was a famous radio personality by the name of Paul Harvey. Man, you remember Paul Harvey, don't you? The rest of the story. Here's a story that he told on one Christmas Eve. Many of you may have heard this. One raw winter Sunday morning, a man heard an irregular thumping sound against the kitchen storm door. He went to a window and watched as a tiny, shivering sparrow was attracted to the warmth inside. And it beat in vain against the glass. Touched, the farmer bundled up and trudged through the fresh snow to open up the barn for these struggling birds. He turned on the lights, tossed some hay in the corner, and sprinkled a trail of saltine crackers to direct them into the barn. But the sparrows 
which had scattered in all directions when he emerged from the house, still hid in the darkness, afraid of him. He tried various tactics. He circled behind the birds to drive them into the barn. He tossed cracker crumbs in the air towards them. He retreated to his house to see if they'd flutter in the barn on their own. Nothing worked. He, a huge alien creature, had terrified them. The birds could not understand that he was there to save them. So he withdrew to his house and he watched the doomed sparrows through a window. As he stared, a thought hit him like lightning from a clear blue sky. The farmer thought, if only I could become a bird, one of them for just a moment, then I would not frighten them so and I could show them the way to warmth and safety. At that same moment, another thought dawned on him as he could hear the peal of church bells calling worshipers to the church that day. At that moment, the simple farmer had grasped the whole profound meaning of what Christmas was really all about. And he put on his coat and he made his way to the church where for the first time in his life he understood why he came. Friend, maybe that's you today. Maybe you need to respond to this message as we come forward and our musicians, as, as musicians come forward. Maybe you need to respond to the invitation today and, and you need to accept Christ and you need to ask Christ to be the Lord of your life. You need to ask forgiveness of your sin and, and realize the beauty and the message of Christmas is not just a cultural thing, but it's a direct responsibility on your part and my part to make Christ the Lord of our lives by asking Him to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us and come and live in our lives.